Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, now you're a rock star. Get the show on. Get paid. It's me, the croupier for the Talking Joe G.I. Joe Comics podcast. If you are new to the show, you can find out all of the details which are on the website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk. Today, we shall be looking at G.I. Joe ARA issue 291. Released this week, the week of recording, 6th of April 2022. This is the first part of High Stakes and is the return of artist S.L. Gallant. And joining me, as always, it's a real American card shop. It's Tim Finn. Tim, how are you? Hello, Mark. And hello, listeners. So, Wait, did you call me a card shark? <laughs> card ca- shop. Card shop? Myself? <laughs> What's, what words are they? A card shop is good. A card shop. Someone who's um very good with cards. Card sharp. Okay. Yes. Thank you. I went. I went. I was. Um. Where was I? I think it would have been the West Coast of America as we were were driving up uh, from L.A. to to San Francisco, and we stopped in in some very small town fast food restaurant uh, for comfort break and and grab some food, and I wanted some water, and I was I said to the person behind the counter, "Can I have some water?" And they were like, "What? Can I have some water? What?" Have some water. What? Oh, you want water? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> glad that in, of nothing. Glad that in 2022, this can still confound and delight. Mm-hmm. So, where are we? We are talking about GI Joe issue 291. Shall we get into it? Yes. So, the team are writer Larry Hammer. Artist S.L. Gallant inks Maria Keane, who's uh, on the main book, where we saw her on... Uh, oh, no, she was on, uh, I think, the last issue of uh, of uh, Snake Hunt, 275. So it's not her first time as inker on the main book. Colours, Jay Brown. Letters, Neil Utake. Group editor, Tom Waltz. And research specialist, Diana Davis. The sit rep... High Stakes Part 1. As Cobra remains busy establishing its corrupt casino operations on Cobra Island, the warriors of G.I. Joe are equally busy attempting to covertly infiltrate their archenemy's latest evil scheme. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. So uh, let's have a look at what is on the front of these old issues. So cover A is the first part of a new five-part connecting uh, diptych, triptych, quad-tick. Quintic. Quint- quintic? That, that's Maybe. The, uh, uh, <laughs> drawn by Freddie Williams II and colored by uh, Fariza Kamapten. Let's try this again. <clears throat> Cover A is the first of a five-part connecting cover drawn by Freddie Williams II with colors by someone new to G.I. Joe covers, uh, Fariza Kamaputra. And so we see uh, heads in the in the background, uh, sort of 
uh, through atmospheric perspective, like they're far away or grayed out, a giant Zartan, a giant Baroness, and then a bunch of Joes uh, in the bottom half the cover Mm -hmm. facing to the right. They're all full body. And then uh, what end up being giant fingers? We're going to we're going to we're going to see Serpentor in the middle of this in uh, two more months. And or, or is it Cobra Commander? I don't know. It's Cobra uh, Commander's hands. Oh, okay. All right. So they're in. They're in. They're in the hand. They're in the right hand of Cobra Commander. But there's also a lot of dirt or sand. Mm-hmm. And unlike the previous five Freddie Williams the second covers, the compositions for this one, uh, it doesn't suffer on its own for being one fifth of a larger composition. But you know, once again. Only two of these, only three of these characters show up in this issue. This cover doesn't have anything to do with anything, and I'm I'm impressed with how Freddie Williams II draws because he he uses an ink wash, and I think it's digital because he he wrote the DC Comics guide to drawing comics digitally. That's a book that you can buy. At the same time, because he both applies a gray wash on top of his inks or pencils. And then the book, the the, and then colors are applied. Um, his characters are particularly rendered, and I find all the Joes on this. This cover looks to me a little bit like someone photocopied it, and what we're seeing is the slightly contrastier sort of second generation copy of it, where I'm I feel like I'm I'm about to lose some of the color fidelity and detail in the Joes. I like the idea for this cover and this, these five covers, but. Uh. <laughs> As for cover B, cover B is strange and beautiful and interesting. So uh, it's credited to Shannon Gallant. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like uh, it's not signed. I, I, I do believe he drew this at the same time. It doesn't look like what I think of when I think of his art. Uh, although I guess the I guess the shapes of the yellow uh, machine gun flashes actually do match his shapes, although they don't have outlines here. So this is supposed to look like a 19-teens, 1920s, 1930s poster. This is supposed mm-hmm. to look like a travel poster mm-hmm. from the from the golden age of sail and and rail and flight. Uh, but it's got a GI Joe helicopter on it and uh, a steam locomotive that has a Cobra cow catcher on the front. And it's it's it is all uh, colored with with one color, I guess two colors, the yellow. But it's all uh, black and white, and uh, sort of a a peach, a sepia peach. So it's really striking. And then the bottom eighth of the cover is uh, black and has a graphic on it that says uh, Paris Grozdinj Transcarpathian Express. And so this is a very I'm inventing a word here designy cover. This is less drawn than it is. I mean, of course it's drawn, but it's it's composed, it's constructed. It's very much about shapes and not about line. It's very much about shapes of black ink and, and geometric shapes. So it's very unusual for that reason. And then also, this may be the only G.I. Joe cover with no humans on it, mm. right? We've seen a couple covers where it's more about the vehicles than it is about the Joes, uh, there was, uh, there's the cover it's in, it's in the sixties of, uh, the stealth and the rolling thunder. And that covers very much about vehicles and not about Joe's, although it's Ron Wagner. You can see some Joe's in it. Uh, very unusual cover for, for, for three reasons. And then a nice detail that I like is, uh, and I'm, I'm guessing this is Neil, Neil Yotake. 
the title of the story, High Stakes, is in a gorgeous Art Deco font. So that that speaks to the the casino theme and the you know I, I, the Roaring Twenties, I guess. Mm. Um, I like this cover, and I think this this really stands out on a shelf uh, at a comic book store. I don't know if it sells GI Joe well, but it certainly is eye catching because it doesn't look like anything else on the stands this week, this month. Yeah, you, what do you think about this cover? I like it. I like it. I think it's. I I, I quite like sort of these these sort of um sort of retro design, very designy. Uh, sort of illustrative um, type type of approaches, and I like when people try to do something quite different. When I when I looked at this, my initial reaction was, "Hey, that's that's not the cover I was expecting to see." Because last time they had a next issue blurb, and we saw Cobra Commander and Doctor Mindbender drawn in a very distinctive um, SL Gallant style, and and this isn't that picture; it's something different. And and also, I thought to myself. It's credited to S.L. Gallant. He was certainly solicited as as doing the the cover, but I wouldn't look at that and be able to immediately point to it being his style. Um, and I actually tweeted him and I said, "Is is this different? Definitely your cover. It's not. You know, it's not. It's credited to somebody somebody else by mistake." And he's he he said, "Yep, uh, was going for a deco travel poster look, as you as you kind of mm. Uh, mm. said." So. Um, uh, good to get that clarification. It was him, and that was kind of the the intent of his of his design. Uh, one of the ways that we know he is an excellent artist is that he can pull this off. That mm. he can draw in more than one style. He's got this style. He's got his normal GI Joe style. He's got the style that he drew those Pink Panther comics in for American Mythology, a very small publisher. And he's I think his day job these days is drawing for the Beano, which is a very sort of cartoony style. It's a British uh, comic. Right. Uh, the image, the full page image that was uh, teased at the end of the previous issue of Cobra Commander and Mind Mender in a casino, that appears to be cover B for the next issue. I yes. see that both at the Diamond website and also at a couple on- online stores. Cover B 292 is, is those two in, in the uh, casino. And then cover RI, Retailer Incentive, for issue 291, is drawn by Jamie Sullivan and colored by Louis Antonio Delgado. And I love the idea of this cover. Firefly creeping away from a a space he's not supposed to be. The sign says restricted area, authorized authorized personnel only. And clearly he's just planted an, an explosive because... We are in, we are sort of low. There's some kind of cut in the ground where uh, there's a high ground behind him, sort of a hill or a plateau. And there are three silhouettes running away from a giant satellite dish where there's an explosion going off. And so the story of this cover, I think, is that Firefly has snuck in through this door, gone under the satellite dish, planted a bomb, and we're, we're at the moment that we see him coming out of the doorway. So I love the idea of this cover. I love seeing firefly i love seeing firefly with a with his traditional version one costume without um a lot of extra bits you know a la the second uh live action gi joe movie and i love seeing his gun his original uh submachine gun or machine gun from his original action figure where this cover doesn't work as well for me is the silhouettes the silhouettes to me ask a question and don't answer them so there are these three silhouettes running away from the explosion. And the shapes of them to me look like, not quite like they're barefoot, but uh, like they have uh, long pants that sort of 
end at their mid calf. And so, and none of them have pistols or sort of, uh, I, I think I see helmets, but may, this may just be haircuts, but none of them have backpacks. So these definitely aren't Joes. These also aren't security guards or soldiers. And so then I start to think, are these like innocent bystanders, bystanders, or are these, they're also proportionately, they're, they're a little small, they're a little young. These don't look quite like grownups. They look more like teenagers. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little confused by the story of this cover, though as a sentence, I really like it as, a, as an actual executed drawing. Um, and then in terms of color, there's sort of just two colors on this whole thing. There's the blue-gray of satellite dish, sky, wall, firefly. And then there's the yellow orange of the explosion. And I understand from a story perspective that Firefly's camo is supposed to conceal him against <laughs> walls and floors and hallways, but he does not stick out at all from the object behind him. And if I were coloring this, I would have put a little more warmth in his in him, a little more cool in the wall behind him or vice versa. And then lastly... It's, it's not a coloring mistake, but I think it ends up looking like one. Um, if you can imagine Firefly's weapon, the part that goes to the sort of um, what the, the, uh, the butt of it, right? It, it goes back and then it curls. Mm-hmm. So the part here that curls is colored exactly like his costume and not like the lighter gray of the actual weapon in this drawing. And I think that's because it has... It's in shadow, but it ends up looking like that piece is missing. Yeah. Also, I wonder if it would be stronger in terms of story if this door behind him were open, because that would cement for me that he has just come out of this doorway. And yes, come out of the doorway, close the door, and then he takes this position as he steps away. But I'm a little uncertain if he really did just come out of this doorway or not. Mm-hmm. since the door is closed <laughs> yeah the doorway look, looks um, a bit small as well compared to his size given that he's sort of resting on his hand on the door frame and and that he's and that he's creeping away i think if he stood up he might yeah i think i think the perspective of this cover i think it doesn't quite work i think the door needs to be taller or he needs to be smaller because if he stood up uh, I guess maybe actually because it's a sort of a service doorway for a for a satellite dish. Maybe the door is actually not a standard height. And you know, I I I, I wish covers A and R I had more to do with the issue. But I'll I'll say that every episode. Yep. Fair enough. Pop fact about these two covers: cover A and the the retailer incentive cover. Both of them were previously solicited for use on issue 286 a few issues ago the freddie williams linked covers was were originally going to be the the last set that we saw and they were displaced by the sort of gi joe movie type covers and uh, this jamie sullivan was uh, was um, originally solicited but not used so yeah interesting that they do finally see use uh, five issues later had we sort of guessed that this, the more Cobra-focused uh, five-part connecting cover by Freddie Williams was bumped from issues 286 because those issues focused on Joe's? I don't, I, I don't know the logic. I can... Did, did we guess that? Or did, did I invent that? Did, did I invent... <laughs> you did you and I have a conversation in my mind? I cannot remember. 
I cannot remember if this was a thing that, that we actually talked about as to, to why there was the switcheroo. But uh, yeah, there we go. For on the on the Freddie Williams cover, what I'll continue to say is that if um, Sir, if we don't get a reveal of Serpentor coming back to life in uh, two ninety three, um, the middle of these five covers, which is kind of the grand reveal and what they're all building up towards, um, then then we'll be given a very bad disservice by the covers. I, I am not imagining that we'll see Serpentor come back. So so if he does, um, and it does link up to actually what is happening on the covers, then um... although although <laughs> there is a, there is there is one panel in this issue, which mm. might suggest Serpentor is coming back. I don't mm. think he is, and I don't think he needs to. I don't think he should. But there is a little track laid in case the writer decides to do that. Mm. Let's get into the plot breakdown, shall we? And find out what happens inside. The Joe team of Dawn, Throwdown, Stalker, Scarlet and Mongoose are on a rescue mission on the Paris Rogdins Transcarpathian Express train where ultra-nationalist fascist paramilitaries called the True Blood Front, led by a man named Wotan, have hijacked the train and taken hostages. That was a long sentence. The Joe's D-Bus onto the train from the Tomahawk and have to make their way to the front where the hostages are in the baggage car. They are taken by surprise, outnumbered, ten to one. Dawn is knocked out by a flying chair, set emotion by an RPG explosion, and while she's unconscious, she has a flashback to Snake Eyes' memories of Vietnam during the long-range recon patrol evacuation when he was badly wounded and rescued by Storm Shadow. The Joes push forward through the train, shooting and slicing the terrorists as they progress. Dawn has another flashback, this time to the helicopter accident, where he was badly burned, saving Scarlet. The Joes battle their way to the baggage car, taking out the remaining terrorists, capturing their leader and rescuing the hostages. Just in time for Dawn to have a final flashback, remembering Scarlet tucking in Snake Eyes' mask. She breaks down, saying, I can't take this anymore. Meanwhile, on Cobra Island, Dr. Mindbender shares with Laura343 more of his lab projects in the back room of the Cobra Casino. He has a DNA regeneration tube, the original brainwave scanner, and a new improved scanner. He has recovered Snake Eyes' memories and is planning to capture him to try once again to try and create a brainwashed Cobra Snake Eyes agent. Dun dun dun! So, what did you think? I like this issue. There was a lot going on, and the flashbacks were familiar, but also new and had an added resonance. We checked in with a subplot that I have been intrigued by and hungry to get back to. Mm -hmm. The action and action choreography was great, and... The the final page and the final panel packed a punch. So, you know, you and I spoke in the previous episode about issue 290 that it felt fast mm-hmm. or, or short. This issue did not. And I I haven't I haven't thought about the two in comparison. That's that's that would take a few minutes of, of thinking or looking at the two <laughs> issues together. Uh, not that I can't do that now, but I what I mean is I hadn't prepared that line of thought. But this issue, like some previous issues from five or ten issues ago, is both a satisfying part one, 
a continuation of many subplots. So in some ways, not mm-hmm. a part one, it's a part 291. And also not quite a self-contained issue, but a satisfying unit on its own mm-hmm. that that didn't end with, you know, a, um, a rote cliffhanger or a... I, I thought it was great. I thought this issue was worked really well. And now I can get into specifics. But what is your overall response? I think not too not too far away from uh, from you. I I enjoyed it. I did feel like it was quite a, a quick read. It was it was you know a main a plot in terms of that that train adventure, and then sort of I guess made something into something slightly more substantial and by broken up by um those, those flashbacks. Uh, and also the continuation of, of I guess, the, the B plot with um, Dr. Mindbender and the casino, which, uh, yeah, very interesting uh, little subplot that has now continued over the course of a few issues. And, uh, yeah, interesting to to see where that goes. And leaving on, a yeah, an interesting note. So, obviously, the, the Dr. Mindbender casino scheme is, is the thing that has given this arc its name, High Stakes. And and obviously Hammer being Hammer, he's not going to play it too straightforward for us. So so despite uh, the the name of the arc, um, we are mostly seeing a a brand new one and done adventure where once again we're sort of opening up in the in the middle of the uh, action. An interesting kind of cliffhanger as well as, as you say, it's kind of not a necessarily a cliffhanger, but more of a in an emotional cliffhanger where you know what exactly is is dawn feeling and how how will she and potentially scarlet resolve it so uh there's an important return in this issue and i don't mean mongoose it's the penciler shannon gallant mm-hmm. who uh did come back for uh one chapter of murder by assassination uh to assist in some scheduling and had come back for what I consider the prologue, the emotional prologue to Snake Hunt. Snake Hunt was this 10-part story with every living Joe character making an appearance. But you wonder, what about all the deceased Joe characters? And so I think it was two issues before Snake Hunt started. Maybe it was three. There was an issue which focused on all of the fallen members mm-hmm. of this ongoing storyline. And he drew that issue. And, you know, and otherwise we haven't really seen him since his long run ended uh, around 244, 245. And it, it is it is wonderful to have him back. His storytelling is not just clear, because that should be the minimum. His storytelling is excellent. Mm-hmm. And I think in a very G.I. Joe way, readers might not quite pick up on that because... This book is, in terms of the reading experience, I don't mean the story, um, in terms of sort of how you take in the story, it's it's sort of as good or better than it sort of always was, always has been, because this book has, for the most part, benefited from talented storytellers. So the day that we're recording this, there is a, a single day comic book convention in Boston, just a few miles from where I am, and Larry Hama is one of the guests. And uh, I spoke with him last night and I said, uh, so it, it looks like uh, Shannon is back for uh, all the way to 300 or at least for this five-parter. How's that? And he said, it's great because his storytelling is genius. Mm. So 
you know, in a, it's not um, flashy to have an artist who's already drawn about 90 issues come back for the final five or 10 as we head to the end towards 300. But man, is this guy reliable, fast, or at least not slow and excellent in his choreography. So I want to point out something in particular. So there is a great bit of continuity on pages seven and eight, where we're in the train and starting with panel two, there are three terrorists and they are radioing to their boss, Wotan. One of them is holding his machine gun. One has just pulled a pin on a grenade and one is holding a cell phone and is talking to the boss. And then someone off panel says, I see a grenade, Mongoose. Mongoose says, I'm on it, stalker. And then in the next panel, a bunch of Mongoose's shots come into the panel and there's a big grenade sort of in the foreground and an open hand, which is one of these three terrorists dropping their grenade. And then in the background, you see, excuse me, in the middle ground, you see one of the terrorists holding his machine gun. And then in the, in the background, the one who was standing dropping his phone, right? So this seems like a small thing. If you've got three different guys holding or doing three different things, they should continue to do that or drop those things two panels later. Mm-hmm. And yet that doesn't happen in every comic book. And then in the next panel, right? Because the grenade's been activated. The next panel, we cut to an exterior of the train and there's a big explosion with a wonderful sound effect by Neil Yotake. Turn the page. Now we're on page eight. Top panel, reverse angle. We're back with the Joes. They're on the left looking right. And behind, between Mongoose and Throwdown is some smoke and a big gash in the side of the train. And outside it is white and light blue for the sky. And inside the train, a bunch of sort of floating papers and some sort of debris and, and the curtains around the windows are all flapping in the wind. And then in the next panel, right, we're still on page eight. We've now got a reverse angle. We're just outside the train and Wotan, bad guy leader, is sticking his head out of the doorway and talking into his radio or his cell phone. And he's looking back at the train and we see the second to last train car on fire. So I'm sure that this is both Hama in his plot tracking this stuff and also Gallant faithfully and thoughtfully uh, executing it. Um, But if it is not in Hama's plot, Gallant is putting it there and, and keeping it there. And if you're thinking, well, Tim, of course, if the second to last train car blows up, it should have the hole in it. Or if we see it again four panels later, that's the one on fire. And I'm not I'm not arguing that an artist would get it wrong and have the wrong train car on fire. But a lot of artists wouldn't take the, the energy and place the, quote, camera and pose their, quote, actors such that you do see that hole or you do see that fire in the next panel, the next, next panel. This is a, a small two-page, actually, it's only a page and a half, uh, out of the two pages of continuity and Hama and Gallant set up an idea, they carry it through, and then there's closure. And that happens all the time in, in good storytelling, in, in television and in cinema and in comics. And I see it a lot of times in Larry Hama, G.I. Joe comics, and Gallant always nails it. Yes, yes, I think I think so. I think he's it taken for for granted in, in because because we've we've had the privilege of having him on on the book for for such a long run but also because his art style isn't overly flashy 
and he he makes it look so easy. <laughs> I, I think that makes us as readers sometimes think, yeah, you know, this is easy, but clearly it's really not. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, there is a comic book convention that is happening in the first. Uh, oh well, it's okay. Uh, I <laughs> I slightly stand corrected. Um, in all of the flashbacks, except for the first page, but I'm okay with that. In all of the flashbacks, the corners of the panels are rounded. Oh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and this is an old-fashioned comic book convention that if you were having flashbacks, you round those corners as a visual differentiation between panels set in the present day. And G.I. Joe has done this before. G.I. Joe doesn't always do this. The first time I noticed it was in uh, 1994, December 94, January 95, when I read the Batman Mask of the Phantasm movie adaptation. And I was struck by how clear the flashbacks were in the movie because the scene slows down and the the sort of uh, chorus of background singers has a certain musical chant and there's you get the sort of shimmer in sound or like the, the, the music of a harp being played. You know, like there are cues that say like, okay, we're crossfading to a flashback. And the comics adaptation sort of only had had different had comic book tools there's no sound in a comic book and so okay well mike parabek who drew that uh, gorgeously could round those panel borders uh there could be a caption a narration box that says you know eight years in the past or you know dialogue could suggest it you know like bruce wayne might be saying i remember i remember andrea beaumont dot dot <laughs> dot um or you know uh, uh we've, we've certainly seen this in um those Jim Lee issues of X-Men where we flash back to uh, Wolverine, Sabretooth, and Maverick as Team X, and it's only colored in brown and yellow. Uh, you can you can do something with a color scheme. Um, and so uh, just as a small, uh, I don't not even old-fashioned, traditional uh, comic book visual device, these flashbacks are all uh, all have rounded corners. This flashback is a is a sequence that we originally saw in Snake Eyes uh, the Origin. And uh, back in issue 26 of the original run. And when the, that sequence appeared, back then, they, it was shown with rounded corners. But something different is happening this time. Yeah, so th- last, last time we saw it uh, as recounted by Stalker, so it was from his point of view. And this time it's very firmly from Snake Eyes' point of view. So it's, it's all uh, consistent. The, the previous sequence was a lot was a lot more silent it was sort of you know stalker kind of narrating it to, to his uh his companions and yeah so we're getting a lot more exposition and chats but but fundamentally kind of the same sequence of but we have events. to we have to we have to nail this on the head even harder because it's not just that it was told from stalker's point of view and now it's from snake eyes's point of view it's that this is drawn in the first person, mm-hmm. not drawn mm-hmm. in the third person. We are seeing this out of Snake Eyes' eyeballs. Yeah. We are seeing what he sees. So in the same way that, you know, you have a video game that's a first person shooter, this is all drawn actually from Snake Eyes' point of view, not just generally or figuratively or kind of from Snake Eyes' point of view. And then, you know, with some details were added way back in 144. And I'm trying to think if uh there are three flashbacks in this in this issue. Oh, and then the scene, the final one, uh, the final one with uh, yeah. If, help we, me if out. we walk through them, so the the LRRP scene, it was originally from twenty six, and and we I think we've revisited it a couple of times along the along the way as well. 
the helicopter accident, I think, was the the same issue the first time we saw it, and then it was expanded um, into into its own story flashback in in issue 144, and and this is you know generally pretty consistent with with what happened uh, there, and and then there's a the third flashback which is uh, Scarlet tucking in Snake Eyes's mask on the Staten Island ferry, and based on what they are wearing, the Scarlet in the sort of the trench coat and Snake Eyes in his sort of uniform with the with the peaked cap. That that makes me think it's probably um, after the events of issue thirty six, all of the ships at sea, where they um, fight some crimson guards on on the on the ferry. Um, Snake Eyes has his mask ripped off, and and Scarlet I think gives him a, a new one, and perhaps he's you know that that tuck is is when um, there uh, she's she's adjusting it um, to to make it look just right. And then we have we have checked back in with this moment on the Staten Island Ferry in 286 and in a Larry Hama sketch retailer incentive variant uh-huh. cover. Mm-hmm. Three sort of, I guess, core memories of uh, of Snake Eyes. My thought on those, my, just looking at those pages though again and, and the original 26, I thought to myself, how delightful would it have been though if those, may, perhaps those, uh, those flashback sequences maybe were coloured slightly differently? Maybe, maybe just a, a kind of a more retro, uh, flatter palette to put us more in mind of perhaps issue twenty six, or in in that that more recent issue with the Scarlet Flash solo flashback. Again, I think the the sequences that were flashbacks there were coloured slightly differently. So, uh, and and that was quite effective. So, but perhaps yeah, perhaps it would be nice to to see something along those lines. Yeah, I'm all for any change of scene to have a different approach in color for physical reasons, you know, like moonlight behaves differently than sunlight uh, or or candlelight or, you know, overhead fluorescence, or, you know, you're in the pit and everything's lit by computer monitors sort of at four and a half feet on a table. Uh, It could be for emotional reasons. You know, you have a flashback and it's a limited palette or it's flat colors and not rendered, or it's all just a knockout. It's all one color with no differentiation. Um, Jordi Belair, the colorist who who does a lot of great work for mm-hmm. Marvel and DC, uh, has colored Batman. Is coloring Black Widow right now. Um, wrote about this in an issue of um, or Image Plus. That's what it was. Uh, Image briefly published a magazine a couple of years ago, which was half catalog and half sort of articles and previews. And uh, the Rick Remender Wes Craig comic, Deadly Class, mm-hmm. which is colored by Lee Laridge. Lee Laridge has always done a great job with limited palettes, probably best known for, for me, best known for coloring um, Gotham Central, colored a lot of early uh-huh. Vertigo work. But every three pages of Deadly Class, the color palette changes as the scenes change. And it's it's just a great visual differentiation between we're inside and now we're in this other inside and now we're outside. Okay, a week ago on social media, um, a preview of this issue went up covers in the first few pages and the sort of notice was what we start this issue with a flashback to uh vietnam and i thought oh wow that's so powerful one of the touchstones of the larger hama gi joe story maybe it'll be a new wrinkle the scene gets expanded or you know a week later a year earlier a month later different characters and i read this i read the scene 
and I thought, oh, I've seen this before. Um, nothing is being added in terms of story, although the the point of view is great. And then these turn up these turn out to be flashbacks that Don Marino is having in the middle of a mission because she has all of the original Snake Eyes' memories in her brain. Mm-hmm. And that is a really exciting and powerful device, storytelling device. It makes me worry about her and the mission because if one of the Joes is getting distracted while a bunch of terrorists are shooting at them from 20 feet away in a narrow train car, right? It's like, we need we need everyone available on this mission, particularly, particularly the other person with the sword. Um, <laughs> and then I'm concerned about Don Reno because if she's having a hard time, she might, you know, hurt, get hurt, lose consciousness, quit the team, have a breakdown, become a villain. You know, this could go in many directions. And I think at at the sort of the at a basic level, this could be an analogy for PTSD mm-hmm. that soldiers uh, experience terrible things and it affects them later and. Uh, this is something that G.I. Joe has checked in with a little bit, but, you know, certainly in the 80s and 90s, it's not something that we all talked about. And and then on top of it, th- this is also, this is incredibly fertile, and I didn't realize how much I was waiting for this to happen ever since Don got the original Snake Eyes' memories. Because it's one thing if she can sort of, with the snap of a finger, fight as well as him, right? That's an interesting device. Mm-hmm. It is a little bit devicey you know like it's it's a little bit of a deus ex machina but you know it's gi joe and they're they're brainwave scanners so sure you know serpentor is a clone of 10 people and he's got all them their memories and like i don't bat an eye at that but as soon as you say well this teenager who was a cobra who's no longer a teenager is going to be a ninja and she's as good as snake eyes like wait a minute that's too much no tim that's actually no more than serpentor (laughs) but I don't know. That was 86 and it's old news. And, you know, at the end, go go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, the the sort of the memories and suffering, the traumas and then the sort of like almost the PTSD of of memories is one thing. But when it's somebody else's memories and it's just that much more sort of confusing and and strange, uh, I think it's just sort of ups the ante, doesn't it? But but sort of returning to to your point about Dawn as, as well, that, you know, We've not seen her kind of that that sort of snake eyes part of her personality or the the memories for a little while now. It was played on a bit more in her early appearances, and and I'm somewhat concerned that they've just forgotten about that aspect because you know snake eyes's memories being in her head and sort of battling to the surface is uh, an interesting concept. Just her being a badass ninja is far less interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no there's no conflict or there's no struggle. I I always make comparisons to Uncanny X Men because it, I think it makes for a good comparison because they're both very long running comics uh, with uh, one or two writers that are most affiliated with them. And you know, this was a Marvel book too, but you know, lots of times in X Men comics, someone gets someone else's memories or someone's memories <laughs> swap bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, Rogue has Carol Danvers's memories, Storm and, uh, was it Storm and Emma Frost switched minds or switched bodies back in Uncanny, I don't know, 151 or so. Uh, in Uncanny 281, 
Emma Frost's, mm, I forget, her mind goes to Jean Grey or one of them is unconscious or something. And and her and, and her and Iceman as well at one point. And, uh, right, right. And Psylocke and... Right, right. <laughs> Psylocke and Quanon. Uh, but the, the, the sort of telepathy of it, you know, it, in, in X-Men stories, that stuff plays out for years. And characters are so bedraggled by it. You know, like Ms. Marvel, now Captain Marvel, like shows up for revenge and she and Rogue have a big fight. You stole my memories. Or, uh, you know, no one trusts Emma Frost. Or, you know, Jean Grey has all of these. You know, she goes mad uh, and, and almost destroys, I don't know, the, the planet, the, the galaxy, the cosmos. So it's it's really important that we come back to this with Dawn. And as you just said, it makes her uh, much more interesting. The final page and a half of this issue are one of the stronger endings of any G.I. Joe comic I have read now wow. that I think about it, because this is something that you can only have happen in the latter half of G.I. Joe. After Snake Eyes is gone and his memories are somewhere else, something like this could happen with Dawn. But there's there's two things happening. She's freaking out because she has all these, she's having these flashbacks and she can't control them. But also she sees Scarlet have this tender moment with Throwdown where she fixes his mask. And then in the final two panels, right, mm. Dawn is crying and she says, Scarlet, I, I can't take this anymore. And this isn't a love triangle. Uh, I don't think Dawn is jealous of, of Sean Collins. Sean Collins is, he's not, he's not very present as a character, uh, these days, even though he, you know, looks like Snake Eyes and is a Snake Eyes, you know, it's it's a crowded it's a crowded ensemble book, and he also doesn't need to sort of say anything or do anything else. So it's not well, that he can't say anything. <laughs> He's mute. Uh, I mean, you know, but like you know, he'd like use his hands or he'd like point or he, you know, I mean, he 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 he, he does plenty in this issue by demonstrating with his actions. But mm-hmm. it's not that I'm it's not that I'm worried that Dawn is angry at Sean or. Uh, sort of love Scarlet because she has Snake Eyes' love for Scarlet inside her. I don't. I don't think it's going to really go in that direction. I think she's just freaking out because there's too much in her head. She can't do her job and she's lost herself. But the tension that it could be this—I don't want to say love triangle, but this three-sided emotional problem—that is something we have not seen in GI Joe. Well, so, certainly some potentially some very confusing feelings for. Dawn, you know, that she's just experienced these two very powerful memories as if they were her own of saving Scarlet, you know, sacrificing um, herself or Snake Eyes' former self in terms of that helicopter explosion and then that very tender moment on the ferry and, and Scarlet saying, I love you just the way you are, and then looking up to see Scarlet. So, yeah, potentially, yeah, very confused feelings. Something else that the the flashbacks remind me of, uh, and and I again I want to I want to point out this this wonderful drawing by uh, Shannon Gallant, drawing this stuff in first person, not easy. Mm. As you said, he makes it look easy, but drawing this comic already is hard. Drawing a third of the pages from a first person perspective, that that takes that takes some skill. Those first person scenes, right? Seeing not just seeing but feeling. Snake Eyes' injuries, right? Anytime we flash back to that scene, I am I am fascinated. I am thrilled. 
and I'm worried and sad. Oh man, it's that terrible foundational thing in, in G.I. Joe comics fiction, right? And when that stuff was first revealed in, in the book, when I was reading it as a kid, I, I couldn't, like, oh, this guy's gone through so much. Oh, he's such a powerful warrior because he's gone through so much. He's unstoppable. Uh, there are some new details here, though, even though we have seen this scene, right? There's, there are a couple new bits of dialogue which are compelling and difficult, right? So on page uh, five, oh, man, that looks pretty bad. Jeebus, part of his skull is showing. That's, you know, that's not, that's not gratuitous. That's, that's realistic and unfortunate and uh, haunting. What, what all this reminds me of, actually is the 1987 Paul Verhoeven film, RoboCop. Hmm. And I'll talk for hours about how amazing that film is. But when Alex Murphy is now RoboCop, he has flashbacks to his life with his wife, his kid, and the moments that he's killed. And those are filmed in first person. Hmm. So the actors hmm. are looking at the camera. Uh, and similarly, as he's, as he's being... Re- There's a whole sequence in the movie, you know, it's like three minutes where... After he's, after he's dead, right? Like, call it, he's dead. And then, you know, just cuts to black. And then you hear like a power-up sound effect. And now doctors are looking down at him and looking down at us. And there's, you know, an operating table light above us. And then some uh, business people in suits are looking at him and then at, at, at us. And then, uh, you know, and then someone reaches their hand in and like, fixes something like, oh, close his eyes or you know, take, that, take that part off. I'm not saying that this is aping RoboCop. I'm saying a first-person point of view visually is a direct way to put the reader, the viewer, in the perspective of the of, of the character. And um, anyway, RoboCop's great. This issue's great. <laughs> Very good. I wonder um, how how they you know this is part of an arc, and and this is sort of eventually going to you'd think probably join up with the with the cobra island plot in in some way potentially um i wonder i wonder if um if dawn's troubles might uh might join up with the uh, uh, brainwave scanner once once more in, in the future also is is there something resolved between unresolved between her and cobra or specifically cobra commander or the baroness because she left Cobra mm-hmm. and she became a Joe and Cobra commander has a real mad on for the original snake eyes who has threatened him more than once. And Cobra commander and Mindbender are convinced they need to take out the original snake eyes. And I wonder if there's, if there's room in the final issues for, mm. you know, Dawn either acting as the original snake eyes who put a knife to Cobra commander's neck in issue, uh, was it 90, 98? It was a Mark Bright issue. So it was 96 or 98. Was it 97 or 99? So that's Jeff Isherwood or Herb Trimpey. Anyway, um, or either acting as the original Snake Eyes or acting on her own because she needs, and I think she actually is free of Cobra. She's been a Joe for, you know, two years in sort of compressed story time. But, you know, Cobra Commander holds a grudge and this kid left and he didn't just leave. It's not like, they left and became a you know shoe salesman in Maine. Like, no, left and joined the Joes. Um, mm. <laughs> can you remind me? Because I, I couldn't remember while reading this issue. Uh, I know that Mindbender says we need to get Snake Eyes and turn him into a cobra, but also kill him and turn him into a cobra. Yeah. Um, 
Cobra still does not know that the original Snake Eyes is gone, correct? Yeah, I believe that is the case. I believe they are unaware. Okay. And and yeah, so so we've we've got um Dr. Mindbender planning to capture Snake Eyes, kill him, brainwash him. Uh, so, so what what does he say? He says, uh I was able to recover all of the memories of Snake Eyes that I thought had been lost. Once we get our hands on Snake Eyes again, I can finish what I started and destroy him while creating a Cobra version of him at the same time. Um, he has to die for this to work? That would be ideal. So so maybe maybe destroying him means destroying his memories and replacing them with some sort of Cobra version or Cobra personality or whatever. But wasn't wasn't this basically the plot of snake hunt which only happens a few issues ago that they kidnapped snake eyes with the idea of putting him into a brainwave scanner and turning him into a cobra agent yeah but they were unsuccessful <laughs> i guess so if it at first you don't succeed try and try again yeah i mean i you know i i don't i don't need mindbender and cobra commander to try again and this is this is not in my top three of subplots to run with in the final 10 issues but you know to hama this might be a dangling plot thread that wants to get somehow resolved uh i i i (laughs) I was just thinking i was just thinking as well wasn't that long ago that um that mindbender had his kneecaps blown off by snake guys so (laughs) i guess it's probably fair for him to hold a grudge uh yes yes good point good point Laura 343's dialogue there. Um, he, he has to die for this to work. It's not just, it's, the um is the only part of the dialogue that tells it and the art shows the rest of it, right? She's holding her clipboard close to her torso, close to her chest in a sign. In the, her body language says that she regrets this. She's uncomfortable with this. She's looking up at the monitor, seeing footage of, I think Snake Eyes fighting a red ninja. I think the idea here is that she's look, she's seeing footage or memories mm-hmm. of Snake Eyes being the best, being deadly, and her her eyebrow is up, so she looks uncomfortable, sad, regretful as she's saying this, and that speaks to how much respect she has for him. That she was the one who had to guard him in Snake Hunt, and remember there was that scene where he's starting to escape and she's pointing her gun at him and she's saying, "Back up! Don't come any." Don't don't head toward that door, and he keeps walking. And this is throwdown, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't don't make me shoot, or don't don't you try and escape? It's my job to stop you. And he just keeps sort of stepping forward. And you know, I mean, as soon as Laura three four three was first introduced, uh, was 20, 20, 10 issues ago, I thought, is she going to become a good guy, or is she going to have some moral ambiguity about what Cobra does? Because that's interesting, and the the sort of sycophants in Cobra are less interesting because it's one note. I mean, Cobra Commander is interesting because he's so evil. Doctor Mindbender is interesting because he's so evil. But beyond that, you want you want shades of gray. Mm. Um, because and- t- towards the end of Snake Hunt, um, you know, obviously she was very sympathetic to to Snake Eyes. She she didn't stop him from es- escaping, and and then Snake Eyes basically saved her. And as a right. result, she kind of let him escape and kind of turned heel on cobra and and sort of um blew up the corridor or, or whatever to to sort of aid that that escape and the assumption would be that you know she would leave 
snake up. So, sorry, she would leave Cobra and maybe join the Joes or go off and do her own thing outside of Cobra. But I guess the more interesting development is that she's stayed with Cobra while having these sort of, I guess, con- conflicted feelings still, mm. still in there. Yeah. So we've got uh, we've got Mindbender with all of his kit there and the mysterious DNA tube. Um, care to speculate? Well, um, uh, I mean... Because we're seeing Serpentor come back in, uh, in, in two issues' time, so... Uh, listeners, that's a joke. He's talking about the cover. Well, no one's going to follow up on this, but I always remind myself that this Dr. Mindbender is a clone. Mm. For, forced on the book... Because uh, in, what was it, 1992, Dr. Mindbender got a new action figure, the purple and yellow one. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this happened during the Transformers crossover, right? We see him yep. getting grown in a tube, mm-hmm. kind of like how we saw Serpentor getting grown in a tube in, I think it's 49. Because I always have purple and yellow and like particular color schemes banging around in my head, if Mindbender is looking at a tube and he's talking about regenerating someone i think oh like he was Mm -hmm. in that in the and then he got that purple and yellow costume i think two things one i don't think serpentor is coming back because i I don't think i don't think there's enough time to have him come back and have him do something interesting Mm -hmm. and all of the other things that you were going to want to resolve as well right yeah i also think it's very likely that that hama doesn't know if serpentor is coming back i think that i think the dna thing is more about you know we we kill snake eyes but we have his memories so we can grow a new person in the in the dna regeneration tube and put evil snake eyes memories into those it's it's funny that well before i reflect on this do you have any speculation um i don't know for sure yeah like like you say, Larry could take it in any di- any direction. Should we play a game of <laughs> who would you if someone's going to be brought back from the light from the dead? Who would you like to see brought back from the dead? Oh, you wow. can sing the jingle, Tim. Um, do 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 do. GI Joe's bringing someone back, someone back from the dead. Three hundred is coming up. It's gonna blow up your head. I don't know. Um. Let's see. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't have a good answer for that because, you know, I have. I'm. I'm sad that Quick Kick died, but I sort of love him from the cartoon. He didn't make a huge impression in the comic. Um, anyone in the comic who has died, I think, sort of the story earned their death, and to bring them back wouldn't. Uh, would either not add much or would cheapen their death. So. I think it's more likely that nothing quite gets made of the the DNA regeneration tube, but that we have one or two more things happening with the brainwave scanner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because very specifically, Mindbender is pointing out Mindbender is pointing out three related but different pieces of technology yeah. in this one panel, and you know, and then and there are there are only there are only ten issues left. um who do you want someone to come back i don't know that i do i think if if it's if it's on the cobra side i mean if it's on the gi joe side um i think the the 
only substantial person that, that they could really bring back would be Snake Eyes. And I guess they're sort of laying some potential breadcrumbs for that in terms of Mindbender having this this record of of Snake Eyes. Um, maybe maybe we it's, it's a route to having Snake Eyes, the real original Snake Eyes, uh, return on the Cobra sides. Most of the Cobra deaths happened in the in the freighter, and of those people who died around that era, <laughs> we've had a few of them come back already. So Billy Zartan. Uh, Dr. Mindbender, um, Serpentor, Firefly um, have all come back. So I think we're we're kind of left with a bit of a B list of the likes of uh, is what's he called the 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 guy who was the <laughs> who Min. Min the guy who kept ferried across um, um yeah, the captain the, he, the, he, cap, yeah Captain Min that he makes it to the cover oh Tyrone. And Tyrone, Ty- Tyrone should come back. And Ty- Tyrone, uh, they make they, they yeah. make it to the cover of uh, they make it to the cover of ninety eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the only the only two that died and stayed dead were were Raptor and uh, Crocmaster. Right. Um, well, there well Croc there is Master, a new Crocmaster. Yeah, Crocmaster was died before his time, so there is a new Crocmaster mm. toy. I do not think the original Snake Eyes is coming back. I think Hama has been repeated re- has repeatedly and and clearly stated that in the letters page and in a few other places that the original Snake Eyes is not coming back. And uh, now that I've said that, I I I reflect upon the sort of logic of what you just said. Like, well, there's some track laid here, and that would be a big thing to do for 300. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think it's more interesting if he if he doesn't. Yeah, I, I I am operating under the assumption that he is gone and it is more interesting and more emotional to feel the loss, but also be able to have new stories told about him, either in flashback or through Dawn. Um, and speaking of insight being revealed through the letters page, um, sad to see once mm-hmm. again, no letters page, this issue. Yeah. Sad. I noticed in the credits that um, Megan Brown is not listed mm-hmm. as assistant editor. Um, I wonder if uh, she has moved elsewhere within IDW that Tom Waltz is the the only, usually for many years we've had two editors listed and we have just the one. Yep. Something, one other small, I, I don't think this actually plays into how the characters act in in this story, but another small element or wrinkle that I felt with Dawn having these memories and then seeing Scarlet at the end and seeing Throwdown is that Dawn is younger than all of them. Mm -hmm. And Throwdown is the second youngest of all of them. So this this gets sort of truncated, this gets sort of crunched together so that it, it actually doesn't matter or make a difference because, you know, Snake Eyes, Storm Shadow, Stalker, Scarlet, they were all they're all about the same age some of them were in vietnam serving together and their friend wade collins had a son sean collins so mm. throwdown is 10 i mean you know i mean we, again within the joes some of the joes are going to be i don't know 24 25 and then some of the joes are going to be 35 and then hawk is going to be 55 right i mean in 86, when Mainframe came out, 
I think between his toy package and his uh, his some of his dialogue in Arise, Serpent or Arise, my brother said, oh, he was in Vietnam. And I think that was to me saying, oh, he's a little bit older than some of the other Joes. And some of the Joes are E4s, and then some of them are lieutenants and captains. And generally, the higher the rank, the older you are. So yes, there is a range here. But Throwdown and Dawn, you know, there was this time jump between when Dawn got the costume and then the yearbook. And then she sort of joined the team, not provisionally, but normally. So it's like, she's not whatever, whatever she was as a Cobra youth, you know, in Springfield, she's not 16 or 18. She's not a high school lacrosse player. She's 18 or 20 or 22. And similarly throw down, didn't they say the same thing to him after he, after Sean was injured they then said, like, well, go off and maybe come join the team. Or then he showed up issues later and they said, we're glad you joined the team. So, you know, in the way that like time moves, you know, there uh, Spider-Man has been published for uh, 50 years and there are 50 Spider-Man stories. Uh, excuse me, 50 Christmas stories with Spider-Man in them. But, you know, Peter Parker is 28. <laughs> or, you know, they like slightly de-age him for a new, like a new number one. He's like... Not 28, he's 24, roughly. So, you know, the I mean, we're still talking about the Vietnam War. These characters have not aged in real time. So there is there is some slippage and play. So, uh, yes, Dawn and Throwdown get aged up a little faster than everyone else. The other characters don't age up as much. And this isn't like the Devil's Due book, where they're all five years older than they were when the book hit a mark five years ago. Um, it's like the Simpsons where, you know, in one episode, Lisa and Bart observe to each other that things go crazy about once a week and then they sort of get set back to normal. Mm -hmm. But all that said, if Dawn is having a hard time, she is younger than the other Joes, even if she's not a teenager anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and, Scar and Scarlet and Throwdown were probably born about 25 years apart, but somehow now almost the same age. <laughs> i i'm okay with that you know the joes the joes have drones and uh tablets now and when i reread the marvel issues they sure didn't and mm -hmm. i don't need some story to explain that and i also don't need hama to go out of his way to not have them have cell phones and drones now or you know if there was a if there's a flashback to vietnam uh like in this issue and someone had a drone that would feel yeah yeah weird yeah that would feel strange but it, it's all elastic yeah that's fine that's all fine uh i want to i want to point out uh some one one thing in the art that didn't work for me on on the final panel of page 16 dawn is lunging up with her sword to take out a bunch of these bad guys before they shoot the hostages and on the top panel of page 17 uh, the bad guys, they're all, they're all in the foreground. They're knocked out in sort of a muddy, a muddy gray, blue, brown, and mm -hmm. they're all shooting. And they say, she's moving too fast. Can't even see her. Brap, brap, brap. And she's whizzing by. Yep. Uh, and her costume is black with a little bit of red. And this issue is great. But this, this one part of this one panel, not penciled or inked or, or colored the way that communicates this idea. She should look like the flash. She's she's running so fast that 
you know, you should see like multiples of her or she should be sort of transparent and you can sort of colored lighter. You can see through her. And then the final one, if you've drawn four of her or six of her, like that's more, I don't know, or opaque or inked more solidly. What this panel looks like is that she um, rolled out a red carpet and like twirled it around in the room. It looks like a solid, opaque, red fabric or wood object. It doesn't yep. look like speed lines. Uh, uh, this that, was this was under my sad. yeah this was under my I spy uh, it was going to be I spy plastic man ah <laughs> uh, yeah from uh, DC there yeah I'm I'm trying I'm trying to put my finger on on perhaps what comic character or cartoon would kind of move in this way where it's kind of like a solid block of color sort of zipping zipping around I feel like I'm there's something I just can't quite put my finger on, but um, but yeah, it sort of comes across across like a bit of a solid object. But the issue, right? Hard book to draw. Uh, issue is probably a rush job because of schedules. Everything about this issue, in terms of art and storytelling, works. So uh, that panel, a little bit of a bummer for me. Deal breaker, no way. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I had on my notes were around, I guess, this this a plots and the the sort of the train and the terrorists, and the first one was sort of noted before that the Larry Hammer sometimes that you can see a little bit of influence maybe from what he's seen and read or maybe you could think has he watched a certain film or read a certain book and and sort of that's picking up in some of what we're seeing in this particular issue. I wondered to myself. Uh, has uh, Larry been watching Snowpiercer lately? Hmm. Well, I I wonder too. Another question would be like, oh, did did Hama read Death on the Orient Express or Murder on the Orient Express thirty years ago? <laughs> I don't remember Poirot being quite so handy with ninjas throwing stars and swords. Or Doctor, you know, or Doctor Zhivago. You know, did Hama see Doctor Zhivago thirty years ago? Or is he thinking, oh, well, I just did an issue with a boat and there was an Arctic issue and we did some tank issues. Oh, a train. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, every every couple of years I do a, a, an aerial issue, well, a train. Could be, uh, could but be. yes, uh, may, maybe maybe Snowpiercer is in the ether. Yeah, it's that, it's that sort of starting at the back of the train and, and sort of working your way forward in, against the the opposition forces the the other thing was about the the enemies that they're facing which uh, forgive me if i have to refer to my notes to get the, <laughs> the name it is the uh ultra nationalist fascist paramilitaries the true blood front led by wotan did you notice wotan has got a bit of a um, like a toothbrush mustache as well and yes. the, the other and the the terrorists all sort of being in those sort of matching kind of overalls type uniform with the the black mask and the sort of glowing green goggles uh, sh shopping at the uh, same place. Terrorists in the G.I. Joe world do have a uh, knack for matching outfits. Yeah, I was um, this had this had, you know, favorite and front and center gi joe characters like scarlet and snake eyes and so this didn't feel like a marvel issue of special missions but in that the joes are taking out some bad guys who aren't cobra it looks and feels a little bit like marvel special missions and you know i do think that cobra is big enough and there are enough individuals in it 
you know, Major Blood and Gristle, who could be leading a side mission or something of this uh, train Europe mission does connect to the larger Cobra story mm-hmm. or Cobra Island and the casino. But also, you know, maybe Hama just needs some bad guys who we can quickly dispatch mm-hmm. in this issue so that, you know, like, it's like, okay, well, the Joes are on a train and there needs to be some fighting and Dawn needs to have these visions. Well, maybe the Joes would take on Cobra or a small sliver of Cobra, but, you know, there are always other bad guys and terrorists and villain armies in the world to pick from or make analogs of. You know, maybe Wotan and his crew do connect in the next few issues. Maybe we never see them again because, well, the, you know, the train plot was foiled. Um, and in fact, Stalker ties it up in a bow. Yep, he, he says, does, yeah. um, oh, Mongoose says, and you took their leader alive to stand before an international tribunal. He's due for some unpleasant rendition before he gets his just desserts. Right. So Wotan is knocked out. And you know, I would I would love if they connected to something, but they don't have to. You know, it's not like Firefly back in the 120s. It's like, oh, it was Firefly all along. Like, Firefly <laughs> is a ninja? Wait, the ninjas can stand on each other's shoulders and make a scorpion? Um, <laughs> you know, maybe this is just like the, I don't know, who I, I don't remember who the bad guys are in Special Missions 14 and 15, but maybe it's it's like them. Or the hostage taker in uh, Special Missions 21? What's the cover where Shockwave is crashing through the window? Yep, in, in, I know that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Shall we move to I Spy? Yeah. I Spy with My Little Eye. Um, so so segueing nicely to my first I Spy, I Spy 29 or so dead terrorists. This has got, <laughs> this got a body count, mostly dispatched by Throwing Star and Sword and, and various other uh, automatic weapons. I Spy Wild Bill... And lift ticket appearing in one panel. Mm, yeah. Is Roadblock one panel too as well? He's in two or three. All right. I spy Scarlet not just throwing a throwing star, but taking a throwing star off her glove, which is which <laughs> this is this is which is satisfying. <laughs> because because you feel like she should do that much more often. And we have seen her throw throwing stars. And I feel like maybe we've only seen her actually take a throwing star off of her glove maybe once before. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as a kid, I, you know, it's like the difference between having any any G.I. Joe figure or Cobra figure and throwing a grenade and having the Frag Viper, right? Like as a kid, you have thought about, you sort of looked at, scarlet's glove and you've thought well i can't take that off that's molded on but you know you sort of pretend that she takes that off and throws it on so just a little a little detail i like there and i think scarlet throws a total of four throwing stars um let me just make sure that i'm not making that up yeah and then there so it's so i think it's pages 16 and 17 she throws uh, two lots of throwing stars at uh, the enemy to somewhat deadly effect. So uh, the original toy had two throwing stars on her arm, on her left arm. 
So do we think that that she's uh, she's tooled up with four throwing stars, or or does she as she progresses through the stars, uh, as she progresses through this train, pick them out uh, out of the uh, dead terrorist skulls, reattach them to to her wrist, for, wipe them down, and uh, and then reattach them to her wrist before progressing on? I think she has four. <laughs> um, I see a lot of sword slashing death in mm-hmm. this issue. And also, I see a lot of blood, and also black it's blood. All yes, it's all black. So, mm. um, the Comics Code Authority was uh, brought into existence in the fifties by a bunch of publishers, so they could put EC, not DC, EC Comics out of business. And uh, for many decades, comics all were submitted. The actual art for each story was submitted to the Comics Code Authority, who would read every story and wag their finger and make suggestions on what to change and what to soften. And there were rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do, how, for example, um, authority figures like police could not be shown to be corrupt. And uh, by the time that G.I. Joe's published in the 80s, I don't know that that art was still submitted. Maybe, Maybe scripts were submitted or maybe... Nothing was submitted, but the publishers were properly sort of cowed and following along and just paying their dues to the Comics Code Authority without actually uh, submitting assets. But it's a self-policing, that is. But early on, they were submitting. Uh, and and sort of two of the well-known rules as of the 80s, which would affect G.I. Joe, are blood can't be red. So if you think of Marvel Comics in the 80s, blood is often brown. Mm-hmm. And two, you can't show exit wounds. And so sometimes people are shot and the bullets just sort of stop within them. They don't burst through the other side. And I'm not, and I'm ta- and I'm not talking about an explosion of blood coming out the other side. I just mean that yellow streak coming out the other side. And, and the same goes for being impaled, right? So, you know, character if characters are famously impaled in Marvel Comics in the 80s and 90s, you either... Uh, often the the sword or the sigh pokes through, but it also pushes their clothing. Like if you took your hand and you put it up your shirt and then you poked your finger, right? You just see a like a, a poke, but not your finger. Anyway, uh, so I, uh, this this comic, this GI Joe comic, is a not approved by the Comics Code Authority. B the Comics Code Authority does not exist anymore. <laughs> C I think it was around 2010. The final one or two publishers that were still subscribing to the Comics Code Authority, which I think the final two were Archie and and DC, but I could be wrong. It was Archie and someone finally stopped subscribing to the Comics Code Authority. And at last, the approved by the Comics Code Authority seal uh, disappeared from from the last vestiges of comic book covers in the 2010s, I guess. Um, But this still makes me think of... G.I. Joe in the 80s at Marvel. Like, oh, that blood's not red. Um, I've got two two asides. One is that um, on the off-panel uh, podcast uh, with David Harper um, interviewing John McCree, um, he went over to New York and wanted, and while he was out there, he'd always seen the uh, the comics code on comics and was you know a little bit fascinated fascinated by it and you know wanted to find out more about how it all worked and what they did and wanted to go over and visit them and called them up and they were like no no don't come here <laughs> it's a very funny anecdote uh, that's and- great i would if 
if I could travel back in time, I would go there and I would, uh, I think I, I think I'd spill coffee on everyone's <laughs> desk and say, stop this madness. And uh, the the other one was that there was a there's an off-panel uh, shot by uh, Throwdown against one of the terrorists um, on uh, I guess it's the top right-hand corner of it's probably page nine. Let me know when you've seen it. He's jumping up in the air. Oh, wait, sorry, uh, I was I was taking I was taking a note. All right, one, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, he's eight, nine. So, so yeah, throw he's, down. He's is, upside. He's yeah. upside down. Up, upside down. He's and there's a, an, a, an amazing um, piece of <laughs> sound effects there. Was it pip should? Um, and and yeah. he's sort of being shot. His uh, a headshot slightly off panel, which um, um, put in mind that that um, glorious issue that was done by um, what's his name? Cooper Bayal. Cooper Bayal. Um, where where he was using some very inventive ways of of having very gory violence just happening just slightly off off to the edge of the uh, of the of the panel. Uh, I have an ice spy, um, and this is this is a nice visual oh, you've rhyme. Got, do you want, you've got quite a lot of background noise at the moment. Oh, uh, it's raining like crazy. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, and I can't do anything. <laughs> Silence the rain. Uh, you want to just. Uh, that's that's we're okay. Just, that's we're, okay. We're just, Charlie, Mike, just wait a, Charlie just Mike. wait a minute. We can keep on going. Okay. It's it's atmospheric. Maybe just come slightly okay. close to the mic. Okay. How, how's this? <laughs> okay. How okay. All right. I have another I spy. Oh, if you hear background noise, it's raining all of a sudden like crazy, and I'm in a room with three windows. Um, this in in the comic, this is shown and not called out. On page nine, Throwdown has this particular. Uh, move where he slashes three bad guys mm-hmm. and and this one is called out and then dawn says uh she calls it a, a triple flying swallow cut she says oh nice triple flying swallow cut sean and then on page 17 also on a right side also a middle panel also about the same size she has a similar but not identical move where she takes out three bad guys in a Mm. long winding s curve oh yeah uh, slash and i thought that that was both an opportunity to uh, further i i was intrigued i was intrigued that no one said anything about it like I, now i'm gonna do the same <laughs> um triple flying swallow cut or you know scarlet could say oh uh throw down and because uh, they don't use code names oh don sean and don are so uh, simpatico because they're both kind of snake eyes is they're both have done the triple flying swallow cut um not necessary she just does something similar mm-hmm. and uh and i noticed it yeah and it creates a big conjoined s of dark blood and it, they have the same sound effect as well zash 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 I spy uh, Throwdown using the same sword that Robert Atkins introduced for Snake Eyes in uh, Snake Hunt, which uh, infamously <laughs> Nitho Diaz uh, didn't use every other issue. <laughs> ah, uh, remind so, me from the big, from Atkins's contribution to Snake Hunt. Does this sword have a have a name or a type? Ooh, um. It, it, Definitely Robert has got a name for it. I don't 
uh, remember if it was specifically called out in the book. I'd have to go back and and look. But um, it's yeah, it's it's not it's dis- not like at the beginning of Snake Hunt. No, no one said um, throw down. Why that sword is perfect for if you ever want to do a triple <laughs> flying swallow. <cut. laughs> I've got I've got the issue here. I can um, give me one. Remind second. us what's remind us what's the number. Are you flipping uh, through one of your giant sweet. books? Well, no, no, I've not bound these. I've not bound Snake Hunt yet because um, I want to make sure that my 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 um, binds are kind of the right spaced out at the right size. So I want to get to to the end of it to figure out um, how many issues to put in um, each uh, each thing. Doesn't look like look like the the sword is named. No, it doesn't look like the sword is named, but um, but they they make a point of sort of lingering on it in the art. So yeah, great that uh, great that SL Gallant makes the point of uh, of using that particular design. Uh, I wonder, yeah, perhaps uh, perhaps Diana gave him a nudge to make sure that he'd used it. <laughs> mm. You know, you know, what I did wonder uh, with this issue. I know we're in the middle of I Spy, but going back to uh, thinking about three hundred. I wonder if Throwdown might exit the story mm. before or during 300, because might might the wrap up of the book, in order to be a little bit of a gut punch, have a character exit the story? Mm. Mm. And is is there some? I think it's interesting. Is but is there some? I mean, you know, right now there are two Spider Mans, not even counting the rest of the Spider Verse, but I mean, very specifically in the main 616 marvel universe there's peter and there's miles there's two batmans right now there's a batman in gotham there's a batman in new york uh you know there's always two or three ghost riders because you know blaze and catch etc right there's superman and his son right right now we're we're in an era of um generations or sort of side you know there's about to be two captain americas again i wonder if there is some redundancy in having throwdown and dawn and if having one of them exit the story simplifies things and also makes the audience feel things. Mm, mm. You might be onto something there. Um, speaking of Sean, I noticed that he uses a very specific uh, weapon as well. He used a silenced Heckler & Koch MP5K. And uh, the reason that I know, <laughs> I know what it was without doing too much research was because I held up the comic to my son and I said, uh, James, what's what's that gun? And he said, oh, that looks like an MP5K. And I was like, you play entirely too many first-person shooter games. Wow. Um, so this well, is... <laughs> well uh, the, the, the perfect analog of this is in 1986, you would pick up a G.I. Joe comic and look at a weapon in it, and he would say, oh, well, that's obviously a Mac 10 because you had bought entirely too many G.I. Joe figures. <laughs> So the MP5 is the ultimate close quarters weapon. It's created for use in confined spaces, is optimally suited for both active engagement of individual targets and for personal defense. Its low weight and compact size offers a decisive advantage. The weapon can be carried concealed on the person without limiting the carrier's freedom of movement. It sounds ideal. Ideal. And um, I think it's, it's... a clever way of showing that that Throwdown is a different character to uh, Snake Eyes because 
by having you know both having a bit more of a signature weapon that snake eyes is so well known for his uzi that that it's it sort of very quickly is a kind of reminder that oh yeah snake eyes is not carrying that that uzi that we all know he he uses that's because he's a different character that is all Mm. (laughs) (laughs) i think that's oh no i had one more um had one more uh i spy i spy the cobra kitchen uh, so the, the the kitchen from Jurassic Park that Billy Penn first introduced in his issue, the uh, Laura and Mindbender walk through uh, the casino, then the kitchen to get to his uh, hidden lab at the at the back uh, again. In the kitchen, there's a bat with a fly, a frying pan, uh, as well as a another bat who's carrying a ridiculously massive stack of plates. And there's a little sign in the kitchen which says, if you see something, say nothing. It doesn't concern you. I laughed out loud when I read that. Uh, any more I spies before we move on? No. Um, um, I, no. Do you have an error detected? Uh, I do. I have two. Error detected. Error detected. No prize incoming. On the inside front cover, one inch from the top, uh, in very, very, I think this is uh, four-point font, uh, on the right side it says, Special thanks to Hasro's Ed Lane, Taya Rio, and Michael Kelly for their invaluable assistance, period. For their invaluable assistance, period. (laughs) (laughs) They they gave a lot of assistance. Also on page six, uh, in that one panel where we see Lift Ticket and Wild Bill and Roadblock shows up for the first time in this issue, uh, he says, uh, but she's back on her feet now. Sounds like Dawn, Scarlet, Sean, Mongoose. And the comma doesn't come after Mongoose. There's a space and then the comma. And the comma butts up against the next word and. So the space and the comma are transposed. Oof. So, that's, get, so that's a typo. You get a rep- reputation for nitpicking with that kind of comment, Tim. But I really like Neil Yutake's lettering, all the sound effects in this issue. So. I was going to say, the other error is that Roadblock doesn't rhyme. Ah, she's back on her feet now. Sounds like Dawn, Scarlet, Mongoose, and Stalker outnumbered something that rhymes with feet. Sorry, continue. <laughs> Have I lost you? No, I'm still here. Uh, just it's not an error. It's it's just a, while I'm speaking of Neil Yotaki's lettering, I do like his sound effects here, all the, all the, the guns and sword slashing. Uh, I do think that the sword slashing sound effects in black are a little hard to read, particularly when they're they're sort of in a blood slashy shape font anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't stick out the way that a, a, a yellow or a blue or a white sound effect would. I know they have little, I know they have uh, light gray or or red outlines, but. I think th- I think they get a little lost in these panels. Mm. So, and there's I think bit, the- there's a bit of that that's intentional as as well that they sort of that that there is definitely a theme of of trying to have the lettering kind of reflect the thing that it's kind of giving an effect to, so that uh, a fire effect looks very much like the fire it's kind of giving noise to. Um, yeah, that that kind of that kind of thing. So. Um, I, I get that that it's a, a, a kind of a consistency to, to some degree. 
I have uh, a, a kind of error detected, but but one that I'll I'll no prize. So in the flashback to um, to the Vietnam era, there's uh, Storm Shadow. He is talking to uh, Snake Eyes, and he talks about. Doo -doo -doo -doo. He says, "When all of this is over and we're back in the world, you got to come meet my family, Snake Eyes. Not just my folks in Fresno, but the main clan in Japan." Uh, now back in issue 286, he says, My mum was born and raised in Sacramento, but my dad came over from Japan. He died when I was 10. Now, folks is often, you know, talks about your mum, your dad. But um, for me, the no prize is, or it's not even a no prize because it's just explainable, that folks is vague enough to just mean family. So... When he's saying my folks in Fresno, he's just talking about his his you know his his family unit back in Fresno. Uh, the alternative no prize to that is that Tommy's dad died when he was ten, but then got better. Mm. Mm. I didn't have a specific hammer time, um, but but I think um, there's there's definitely uh, Larry Hammer's fingerprints uh, are are very visible to be seen in this issue. I did have a colloquialism. There used to be a pudding that was over-egged. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. At first it was British, but then it was Commonwealth. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. But now there's a new player in town. A comic book writer of of some renown he's using real world examples and peppering the issues with with lots of samples it's a larry hammer colloquialism he's talking gi joe and all its heroism can you guess what it is is it something new now listen as larry drops a slice of real life on you my colloquialism was ricky tick um, I think it makes sense in the context of how it's said. So it's Stalker saying that uh, he says, we had contact with reinforced platoon of NVA, Saperstein Escobado KIA, Collins MIA, and we had to DD Mo Rick Tick, Ricky Tick. So no recovery. Lots of abbreviations right. there, but uh, Ricky Tick specifically. Well, DD Mao is get out. Yep. So this, these, I, I don't remember exactly what all these mean, but these were all used in Marvel's The Nom, and every issue on the letters page would have a glossary so that the, the comic wasn't interrupted by asterisks and footnotes. So the, the colloquialisms that all the characters used, like LZ, Landing Zone, Charlie, Chuck, right, Arvin, uh, uh, you know, uh, Buku, Boom Boom. Uh, so, I, I I read this word balloon and I said I understand what this means. I don't know I don't know exactly what each of those means anymore. But when I was reading the nom, I did. <laughs> NVA that's North Vietnamese Army. KIA is yeah. killed in action. MIA is missing in action. And you know it's it's sort of interesting as well that they they're sort of calling out that that they do believe Tapestine Escobado killed in action and Collins was only uh, missing in action. That they a uh, little bit of. Um, doubt here even even then that um uh that as, as to sure as to be sure that he was uh, killed or not uh they obviously when they go back to the memorial later on they do assume that, that they expect to see his name there and don't um so ricky tick 
derived from the story in the Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling. The story features a mongoose named Ricky Ticky who exhibited great speed. And to do something, Ricky Tick is to do it very quickly. So DD Mo Ricky Tick means out. Get out of there quickly. Quote of the week. 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 Favorite line of dialogue. You gave mine away already. <laughs> uh, you gave mine away already. Oh no, mine was Jeebus. Part of his skull is showing. Oh jeez. Uh, I thought you were gonna guess Wild Bill saying, uh, "Somehow I still feel sorry for the terrorists." Oh thought you would do that mine was the was the sign the tiny tiny sign in the kitchen <laughs> if you see something which i i think is a is a is an art addition and, and not in the plot not in the yeah script. that would be my guess yeah, yeah yeah um so i think that is it pretty much wrapped up apart from uh, our yo joage score Yo, Joe, Cola, not grape soda. Yo, Joe, Cola, it's the time to give comics the rank. They poo off five, zero to ten, that's the score. Had enough or hungry for more? The Joes can open their fizzy pop, but you know us, we can't stop. It's Yo, Joe, time. We're ready for Yo Joage with a brand new jingle, which um, was <laughs> was used for the first time last episode. I'll go in first, so I'm not biased by what you have to say. I will go in with, I think, seven and a half. A very solid one and done adventure on the train with uh, some ongoing mystery about Dawn and her flashbacks and what will happen with that. And also uh, some small progression of the Cobra Casino uh, storyline, which I think we will see in some uh, more detail next issue if the cover is anything to go by. So very much looking forward to that. Uh, very solid. Um, happy with that. Seven and a half. Eight. For, for all the reasons that I have already said, particularly from my introduction, that uh, the flashbacks are... There are they're powerful when we connect back to that, but they have this added resonance because they're first person and because Dawn is experiencing them. the uh, The train stuff is great. Uh, the 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 check in with Cobra is great. Um, the ending is great. Final final page and a half. Very good. Okie dokie. So uh, we don't have anything in from listeners this week, but if you do want to leave us a message, you can do so now. So go to talkingjoe.co.uk, which is the website, head down to contact us. And there is a little box there where you can click on it and you can record a message. So if you've got a comment uh, for us uh, or about the issue that we just discussed or even a G.I. Joe Origins movie trailer or anything else, uh, then you can uh, do it uh, there and we might play it out in a future episode. And uh, while you're there on the website, talkingjoe.co.uk, that has got the links to all of the various things like uh, Twitter, Facebook, 
Instagram, all of the YouTube videos, the podcasts, and also a link to our Patreon where you can back the show and uh, contribute towards some of the old running costs. Uh, just like Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher and Justin do uh, and are rewarded with early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. Tim, where can people find you? My comic book store is Hub Comics in Somerville, Massachusetts. Hubcomics.com and uh, weekly video updates on our YouTube page, youtube.com slash hubcomics. And my blog, my G.I. Joe blog is a realamericanbook.com. Very good. Next time you can find us, we will be talking about the very latest issue of G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, which will be issue 292 High Stakes part two more sl galant more cobra casinos all very exciting and uh and hopefully we're going to be seeing quite a lot of uh regular frequent releases as we have that uh drum beat to get us but to issue 300 by at uh, the end of the year we also are continuing our look back at the devil's due era so we're right bang in the middle of the Brandon Jerwa years. We also will have various other special episodes like uh, like this upcoming G.I. Joe issue 21 cover version, the, the 40th anniversary issue. That will be, uh, I'm looking forward to, to seeing how that all turns out. And uh, we'll also hopefully be talking before too very long to... Uh, to the guys behind the Total Action Force Kickstarter project about how that's all going. So lots to look forward to. But for now, I think that is us done. But remember... Nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast! With a guy over sitting in the dark in England and another guy whose day is still ahead of him over <laughs> in the States. Laters. Uh, nice talking to you. I'm going to hop off. DD Mel Rick Tick. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>